All right, turning your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 885. And if you're a guest with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, we would invite you to take the one in the pew back in front of you and use it as we walk through this book of Romans together. Romans chapter 4, verse 16. Let's read this text together through the end of the chapter. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, He believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification." The main idea of this text, and so the main focus of our time this morning, will be this that the promise of God depends on faith because the people of God depend on Him. The promise of God depends on faith because the people of God depend on Him. And we're going to look at this idea in three ways one, the necessity of faith, two, the experience of faith. And three, the result of faith. Necessity, experience, and result. Now I wonder if, like me, when you read passages like this that talk about the faith of a biblical character, that sometimes it can feel like we're comparing apples and oranges. We're comparing the experience of a biblical character with the experience of our own. Those who live in what seem to be extraordinary circumstances for those of us who seem to exist in the mundane. The faith of Abraham and the faith of a mom of three. The faith of the father of many nations and the faith of a man who did all in his power just to get up to come to church this morning. The faith of a man to whom God spoke directly and the faith of someone who is struggling to read their Bible. The faith of a man who had a child when he was 100 years old and the faith of a teenager who's considering self-harm. The faith of a man who has promised as many offspring as there are stars in the sky and the faith of a woman who doesn't know if she'll ever have children. See, God gives us examples of faith like Abraham, not so that we will long for the experiences of Abraham, but so that we would look to the one in whom Abraham trusted. So we shift our focus not to Abraham, but to the one 
to whom Abraham was looking. And so as we walk through this text, which mentions Abraham over and over again, let us work hard to look past him to the one in whom he put his trust. For it's not the degree or the amount of faith that we have in the midst of our experience, but it's the reliability of the object of our faith that matters. And so with those thoughts in mind, let's consider the necessity of faith. Verse 16, that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So throughout chapter four, four, Paul has established for us the context that Abraham, the father of God's people, the recipient of the promise, the patriarch of the family of God, was not justified by his works, but by faith. He's outlined the order of events in Genesis, and we were reminded last week that Paul's admonition to his audience is just read the text, read the story, and see how it goes about, that Abraham was justified because he believed God, not because he obeyed God. Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, not based on merit, but based on belief. But why has God designed his redemptive plan in this way, to be dependent on faith? Seems to be part of the question that Paul's seeking to answer in our text this morning. Now, our English translation can make it seem as though 16 is referring to the section before. Now, there's definitely a connection there. But 16, that is why it depends on faith, seems to be pointing to the second clause. So let's flip those just to help us keep them straight in our minds. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, that is why it depends on faith. See, the reason that faith is so important and the reason that God has designed his redemptive plan is twofold, these two reasons Paul gives us, so that the promise would be of grace alone and it would be guaranteed. That this promise would be of grace alone and that it would be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring. Now that first one, grace. Now keep in mind the context, the promise to which he's referring, that God has promised that the children of Abraham would be heirs of the world and they would be recipients of God's grace and his mercy and they would experience full acceptance before God and an eternal existence in his presence, submitting to his rule and enjoying his blessing. But as Paul established in the last section, this inheritance is not earned. It depends, on gra- it depends on faith so that the promise may be of grace. See, if our access to any of God's promises are by any activity on our part, then it is not grace. Now, the second reason here, and maybe even more astounding than the first, but definitely related, is so that the promise would be guaranteed. See, God has not built an out clause in his promise, an opt-out as though, well, if things don't go the way I want them, then I can pull back my promise. But no, God has established his covenant, and it's an everlasting covenant. And so he promises it to all of Abraham's offspring. Now, how does Paul describe Abraham's offspring? 
the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. Now, Paul's not saying there are two routes to access to this promise. If you adhere to the law and if, or if you have faith, either of these are valid options. But rather, he's talking about categories of people. The adherents of the laws are the Jews. Some of your translations may put it a little easier to say those who are of the law, meaning those who are ethnically Jewish, and then those whose faith looks like Abraham's. And for those of us who are Gentiles, who were not raised as Jews, then our faith resembles that of Abraham's, maybe even a little more closely, because we were called out of our pagan idolatry. We were called out of our worship of other gods and other things, and we were brought into God's people. And so those who are adherents of the law, those who are Jews, as well as those who share the faith of Abraham, those are Abraham's true offspring, offspring of faith. Now he says that in 17, says this, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. This quote comes from Genesis chapter 17. So let's read that section briefly. Genesis 17, four through eight. Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram. But your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. See, this quote that Paul has is a reminder that the new covenant reality that we exist in as Christians, what we experience on this side of the cross is grounded in an old covenant promise that the promises God makes in the Old Testament are realized in the New Testament and in the church because of what happens smack dab in the middle, the cross of Jesus Christ. And notice how he gives this promise before he has children. Again, if we look at the narrative, chapter 17 happens before Abraham has children. And he's already given the title of the father of many nations before he even has one biological son. And this is the certainty by which God's promises are made. That God gives a heavenly declaration before Abraham experiences what God has established. So God establishes it, and then sometime down the road, Abraham will then experience that reality. The promise is fulfilled. And notice in that passage in Genesis how none of this is left up to Abraham. None of this is his work. None of this is his achievement. I mean, even verse six, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring. See, God is the actor here. He is the one who's moving. He is the one who is initiating. And so this promise is not dependent on Abraham's faithfulness or the obedience of his offspring. God demands obedience, but he's not dependent on it. Praise God. Now, 
How do we know this? Well, this is all done, verse 17 tells us, back in our verse in Romans, this is all done in the presence of the God in whom he believed. And how does he describe this God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist? See, Paul reminds us that the faith of Abraham was in a God who raises the dead and creates out of nothing. The God who speaks and makes the world. And we'll talk about that idea of resurrection in a minute, but think about Abraham and his gratitude for the Lord. Again, Abraham, who did not acknowledge God, did not submit to him, is spoken to, spoken to by God. God speaks and he creates this people. And so throughout Abraham's life, he's reminded, God, you are creating a people out of nothing. I am not pre-existing material that you can work from and then create this great people because I'm worth anything. But you're creating out of nothing. So here's the foundational truth that's established in these verses, that those whose faith is in God find grace and assured acceptance before him. But notice how far we've come for these truths to bear any weight. It's one thing for us to say, before God, there's grace and acceptance found. And many of us who are Christians would say, amen, over and over and over again. But if we don't understand the background information, if we hadn't worked through four chapters of Romans to get to this point, I'm fearful that these ideas wouldn't bear the significance that they are due. Katie and I watched this documentary the other day called Free Solo. Maybe you've seen it. It's pretty popular. But it's about this man who free solos the rock formation El Capitan in Yosemite. If you've ever seen a picture of Yosemite, it's this 3,000-foot rock face, okay, where the handholds are the size of pebbles. And this guy does it without harness, without any belay whatsoever. He just goes up it in something crazy like less than three hours. But when we were watching the documentary, there was this comment that was made by this other climber. This other climber is arguably the best climber in the world. And he said, when people who know anything about mountain climbing watch this guy go up the face of this mountain, they're amazed and they're in awe. But when we, who are experts in mountain climbing, when we watch him, we freak out because we know how dangerous it is. Well, how often when we approach these weighty ideas in Scripture, do we just accept them and never consider the background information? We accept them at face value, but we never consider the weight that is behind them. So to say there is grace and acceptance before God, we should say that all day long, but we should never forget the three chapters that have led to this point. The idea that all men are sinful and deserving the judgment of God. And so for Paul to make a claim that anybody finds grace should astound us. But not only is there grace extended from this God to sinners who don't deserve it, but God guarantees their acceptance by faith. These are truths we cannot pass over, and so it's worth the hard labor to get to this point. It's worth the difficult study. It's worth mining through rock doctrine so that we will find gems. This is the necessity of faith. Now let's consider the experience of faith. Verse 18. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. 
He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So now that we have made this theological claim about faith, what faith achieves, why it's necessary, what does this faith look like experientially? What does it look like from our perspective? In hope, he believed against hope, Paul says. And this seems to be Paul's way of saying that Abraham was not naive. He acknowledged reality, but he also trusted that God would use it. Perspective that if circumstances determined his reality and the realization of the promise, that there truly was no hope. Hope. Abraham's hope was in spite of what he could see. Because what could he see? Well, he could see that he was 100 years old and he considered himself as good as death. And he could see that his wife was barren. And so God's promise is you're going to have as many kids as there's sand on the seashore. And so Abraham's got God's promise over here and then he's got what appears to be reality over here. And so Abraham somehow has to bridge the gap between these two, perspective and promise. And yet Abraham, Paul says, did not weaken in faith when he considered these two things, his biological roadblock and his wife's biological roadblock. In fact, it goes on to say that he grew strong in faith, that no unbelief made him waver concerning God's promise. Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Yet when we read the account in Genesis, if you were to go out today and read through the book of Genesis, you would see snapshots in Abraham's life where you would say, well, maybe that's not true. Is Paul revising history? Isn't this the Abraham who lied about his wife in Egypt? Isn't this the Abraham who laughed when God gave him the problem? Isn't this the Abraham who took his, ser- his wife's servant to have a child? How can Paul say that Abraham didn't waver in faith? How can Paul say that he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised? Are we just glossing over our hero's flaws in order to put them on a pedestal? Well, first, we've got to look at the whole narrative of Scripture, right? That when the Bible presents characters, when the Bible presents figures, one, it presents them accurate, right? The Bible doesn't hide the flaws of the supposed heroes in the book. David's flaws are on full display. Abraham's flaws are on full display. Noah's flaws are on full display. Peter's flaws are on full display. Paul's flaws are on full display. So why does the Bible do this? One, it does it so that we don't confuse the important figures of the Bible for the main figure of the Bible. See, Abraham was never meant to be the Messiah. He was never meant to be the Savior. And so his flaws are on display to say he has the same problem as the rest of you. So when Paul is describing Abraham here, he's not seeking to give an inaccurate description as though his audience is going to forget who Abraham really is. 
but rather he's presenting the overarching theme of Abraham's life. See, there's movies out there which if you skip certain portions, for example, It's a Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart, right? Great movie. But if you skip certain portions, that can be a really depressing movie. Because he loses the, the, the loan company, he I mean, basically neglects his family. And so if we skip certain portions of the movie, it can be a real bummer. But when we watch the whole story, when we see everything unfold, then we see the overarching theme come into picture. So yes, Abraham has his flaws, but Abraham is also the one who over the course of his life demonstrated a faithful trust in God. This is the storyline of Abraham's life. And so we use Abraham as an example for us. We have the promises of God and we have our experience. And many times, if not most of the time in some seasons of life, those two things can, those two things can seem incompatible. There's no way to bridge the gap between what God has promised us and what my experience is trying to tell me. We know God's promises and they give us hope. But the order of our lives, the suffering, the difficulty that we experience on a day-to-day basis clouds our vision and seeks to rob us of our hope. Promises like John chapter 10, 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. God, I know that you have promised eternal life. I know that you have promised that no one will snatch me out of your hand, but I don't know if I can make it through today. Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God, I know that you've promised never to leave me, but the loneliness I experience is oppressive and debilitating. Philippians 1, 6, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. God, I know that you will complete a good work in me, but I'm so sinful, I'm having a hard time believing that's true. Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, God, I know that you promise that everything will work for the good of those who love you, but I don't see how you're going to bring any good out of my marriage right now. I don't see how you're going to bring any good with my situation at work. God, I know these are the promises, but my experience is trying to tell me something very different. This is where the relationship of hope and faith comes into play. Now, many times we can use these two terms, hope and faith, interchangeably, and for good reason. They're closely related. But there's a little bit of a nuance between them. I found this helpful. I hope you'll find it helpful as well. Hope considers not the means, but the end. Keeps our eyes looking forward, forward to the fulfillment of the promise. Hope is what keeps our eyes at the end of the line. And faith, faith is is the trust that God will use the means of our life to lead to where our hope is. Faith trusts that God will work in all circumstances to bring about the realization of our hope. And the writer of Hebrews describes Abraham in a similar way with these two ideas, that he looked forward and he trusted God in the meantime. Hebrews eleven eight, By faith, Abraham obeyed 
when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. And verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. See, Abraham is the example of a man who looked forward to the hope, the hope that he would dwell in a city whose foundations and builders is, builder is God. But where is he now? He's in a tent. So we keep our eyes on our hope and our faith sustains us as God moves us from point A to point B. Even if it looks like, let's say the summit of the mountain is to the right and to the left, but the trail is leading us down or it's up and to the right, and this tr the trail to the summit is down and to the left. It doesn't seem as though this trail should lead to the top, but we're going to trust the guide that the Lord has given us. We're going to trust that the means at which our lives go will lead to where our hope is. So how do we feed our faith, especially when it's weak? By reminding ourselves of our hope. So feed your faith with reminders of the Lord's faithfulness. He has given us a written account of his steadfast love for his people in his word, his unshakable love for the ones on whom he has set his favor. And so dwell in his word, mine his word, because we don't grow our faith by looking to anyone but our hope. And he has revealed himself to us. And by his grace, he has given us something else. He has given us brothers and sisters who are living examples of the Lord's faithfulness. Because when we look into our own lives and we have an honest assessment of ourselves, we see nothing but weakness, inability, and futility. Maybe you see something different. That's what I see when I look at my, myself. And when we come to terms with our weakness, what we do is we cultivate the soil for our faith to grow. See, God is not interested in making you strong. He's interested in revealing your weakness so that your faith in him will grow. So don't lie to yourself and don't say to yourself, oh, if I just have enough effort or enough gumption, I can do it. Don't feed your faith with food that's not sustaining David Pallison exemplified this type of honest assessment of self. David Pallison was a biblical counselor who passed away this last week from stage four pancreatic cancer. But before he passed away, he penned these words. Speaking of Romans 8, 26, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. He says this, weakness is a comprehensive description of our human condition. We are perishable. We are mortal. We face a multitude of afflictions in our lives, and we are sinful, bent from the heart towards pride, self-righteousness, fear of man, and a multitude of desires and fears that beset us. But the mercies of God meet us in this comprehensive condition of weakness. See, when we acknowledge ourselves in our true condition, then we are more apt to look to God in hope. This is the example that Abraham set. 
And this is where, when we have an hard time articulating these things, the Psalms can be really helpful. Because the Psalms, many times, are examples of God's people crying out to God when their circumstances are trying to rob them of their hope. So let's read Psalm 77, starting in verse 4, and see if you can identify some of the emotions and experiences of the author here. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. And notice that between verses 9 and 10, experience doesn't change. But where he puts his eyes changes. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. This is the experience of faith. Now, the result of faith, verse 22, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We'll go through these verses quickly because next week we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the result of faith, and I'm so looking forward to it. But what was the result of Abraham's faith? It was righteousness. Why? Because he believed that God would accomplish what he had promised. Righteousness, not of works, but righteousness from faith in the one who would accomplish the task, who would fulfill the promise, who would work through his circumstances to deliver blessings to his people. But notice what Paul tells us, that the account of Abraham's life was not written for his sake alone, but for ours. It will be counted to you. The righteousness that was given to Abraham will be counted to you, credited to your account. This is the beauty of the gospel, that God's righteousness, that the righteousness before God is not merited, it's given. And notice the similarity of our faith and Abraham's. We believe in a God who raises the dead. Abraham saw death in his own body. He saw death in the barrenness of his wife. And even after Isaac was born, he still had to believe in a God who raised the dead, right? Because what was he asked to do? He was asked to sacrifice his son. And Hebrews 11 tells us, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. See, God had given him a specific promise that through Isaac, your offspring will be named. But now God has given him a command, sacrifice your son. But here's the fuel of Abraham's face. Verse 19, he considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. 
so too do we believe in a God who raises the dead. But our faith is even more specific than Abraham's. We believe that God has indeed raised one man in particular as the first fruits of resurrection, Jesus our Lord. See, the faith of the Christian is hinged upon the resurrection of Jesus because God gives grace, he gives righteousness because it was earned, just not by us, by Jesus. And so for Jesus, for this Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. He paid the penalty and was delivered up to the cross and God raised him from the dead in vindication, securing our right standing before God. See, our faith is not without reason. Abraham's faith was not without reason. He considered his circumstances, but he saw that the God who gave the promise was greater than his circumstances. See, the result of faith is righteousness because faith is a lifelong trust that God accomplishes the very things that he's promised. And we do look forward in hope to things that God will accomplish, but we specifically look back to one event that God has already done, that the penalty is paid in full on the back of Jesus Christ. And that penalty is shown to be paid in full because Jesus raised from the dead. See, we need, to, we need forgiveness to avoid the wrath of God. And Jesus is delivered up in our stead. We need righteousness to be able to stand in the presence of God. And God raises Jesus from the dead, securing our right standing. So by faith we look, and then the status of Jesus is credited to your account, righteousness. Righteousness.